Hello, my name is Philip Miraton, and today we are going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution, to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now, here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Heaven at the End of Science, Philip Meriton. Now, today we're going to be talking about a subject that since childhood probably remains at the back of all of our minds. And this is the topic of, is there truth in the story of the Bible? Is there truth in the stories of ancient mythology? What about those ancient Greek gods who lived on top of Mount Olympus? Is there any truth to these stories? Now on this topic, in today's world, we have a wide range of viewpoints on either ends of the spectrum. We have the modern materialist scientist who basically categorizes all stories in the Bible and mythology as science fiction or fantasy. And then we have some folks, maybe we'll call them the biblical literalists, who take the words of the Bible as true. So they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. And of course it raises the question, is there a middle ground here? Is there, is there a different perspective to take on these stories that could perhaps illuminate why we seem so intrigued by them? And that raises the question of, well, if these stories are true or partially true, then how can they be true? What evidence do we have for some of these stories? Is there any logic, any reasoning we can bring to the table? That, that perhaps put these stories in a new light. So like, like other shows, today we're going to take a new perspective on this question. And as guests today, we have somebody who's actually spent a lot of time studying this very topic. Her name is Dr. Rita Louise. She is the founder of the Institute of Applied Energetics and the host of her own radio show called Just Energy Radio. She's a 20-year veteran in the human potential field and she has the gift of a as of being a medical intuitive and a clairvoyant that illuminates and enlivens her work she's the author of the books dark angels an insider's guide to ghosts spirits and attached entities avoiding the cosmic two times four the power within and her new book which we'll be talking about today called man-made the chronicle of our extraterrestrial gods. Welcome to the show, Rita. Hi, Philip. Thanks for having me. Well, we were just talking that today's a special day in the football world, but we're going to try to put that out of our mind for Go a little Niner. bit here. <laughs> we're going to try to put that out of our mind for a little bit and focus on these other big questions, and then we'll get to the the modern myths of, of, of uh, football players. But, but first of all, now you've spent a lot of time studying this question about myths and history, but what, what, what is it about these myths, such as the Greek gods, for example, sh that should interest us? God, no one's asked me that question before, so now you're making me think. <laughs> and I haven't had a beer yet. No. Um, you know, when we think of God, we think of this heavenly 
you know, benevolent, and I'm going to say soul that looks at, looks over us and, and is looking for our best interest. But when we actually go and read mythology, that's not how the gods are portrayed. And there is a definite dis, uh, discrepancy between what our belief God is and what mythology portrays as who God is. And, you know, if we really want to understand who we are and where we come from, we have to look at, you know, all of the material that's out there, you know, not just the Bible. And my, you know, my husband, who is the co-author of this book, he's like, you know, you can't bash the Bible. And it's like, I'm not bashing the Bible, but there's more out there than just that book to explore. Well, well, I think I think uh, maybe what you're saying is that we have so many different concepts of God in our mind, with a big G, small G, but but uh, two categories of these would would be uh, sort of the big G God as spirit, the absolute being, uh, the ground of being, all, all this kind of stuff. But but then but then we actually have people, uh, characters in stories, who are gods. Who are but and and they're people and they're living in time, or they seem to be living in time. And it is is that is that what you're is that what you're saying that that we we forget that these that these gods of ours come in many forms. Exactly, you know, and I think that we saw them as gods. I mean, think about it. If we could travel back in time. 20,000 years ago and got to hang out with our Cro-Magnon ancestors and we had cell phones and we could talk to each other on cell phones and we had guns and and had what we consider as, you know, regular technology or tablets, you know, we could hook to the internet back then. They would they would be marveled at what we could do. And so if we ordered them around and, you know, kind of got big headed and asked for them to worship us and serve us, I think they would because they would see us as having these powers and abilities that far exceeded anything that was in their universe at the time. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of a of a uh, observation that a recent scientist said something about how how to a a earlier culture the the uh the breakthroughs in modern technology would appear to be miracles a lot of things that we're doing today would clearly appear to be miraculous to people that lived a thousand years ago maybe even a hundred years ago so so what so so what does that so what does that mean what what does that bring us to when when we when we see that that today perhaps some features of our culture would appear to be miraculous or would or would appear to be mysterious to these earlier um, creatures that we identify as gods. What does that what does that mean? Well, I think for them, you know, we were all powerful. You know, it's interesting and something that I've been thinking about, and I think people know this, but not on a, you know, like in the front of their mind kind of thing. Right. It's just really been in, and, and I'm going to be very gracious here, the last hundred years that we can look at this mythology and start to recognize that it is technology that they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, 
we didn't even have the words or the concepts within our culture to identify um, what was going on. And, and let me give you a prime example. You read these stories about um, the creation of man and, and the stories look remarkably similar to stories that come out of medicine about genetic engineering, you know, or, you know, Monsanto and their GMOs where they're going and creating these things, you know, or stem cell research and, and all of these things that are coming out of science today, you read the stories and they're remarkably similar. And so, a hundred years ago, we did not even have that concept that that would be a possibility for us to do as a society. And, you know, so now I think we, we have the words, the, the vocabulary, the conceptual knowledge to start validating what the myths are saying. And so I don't know if that's one of the reasons it's starting to come to the forefront that we 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 can understand them. You know, we have Star Trek. We understand that, you know, they're. You know, there are starships that can fly through space and we can have communicators and there, there's just um, more understanding today than there was in the past. Now, are you saying that there's and, – and, and one thing that you do in your book, that, and, and it's, it's one of the best um, sort of examples of this where you, you draw parallels between ancient myths or what we call ancient myths and modern discoveries – and is, is what you're saying that that the that these myth myth stories such as the creation myths seem to be parallel in some way with today's scientific creation stories? Is that is that? What I mean, think? I think so. Um, for example, there's a story that comes out of Mesoamerica that talks about the creation of man. And, you know, it was decided to create man, and they asked the gods how they could do that. And so they were told that they needed to go into the underworld, um, which is a common theme of, you know, creation happening in a, some kind of a subterranean realm. But they needed to go into the underworld and get the bone of one of the previous race, you know, a, from the race of giants. And from that bone, they used it and brewed up this concoction and created, you know, stirred the pot for four days and then a man emerged and then they stirred the pot for another four days and a woman emerged. You know, but where do we get, you know, genetic material Ooh, from the bone marrow, you know, from blood, you know, and so could that be what they're talking about? Well, well, well. Let me give you a different perspective on okay, this, no. and that is, I, I, I've been, I've been reading. Um, I'm sorry, I was watching a, uh, a lecture series by uh, the uh, teaching company. It was called Big History, and the, the lecturer was talking about creation myths. Uh, the, the diff I guess Big History is supposed to be starting with the Big Bang and going to the present, so it puts all history together. But he was he was talking and he was talking about the all you know some of these creation myths, the Epic of Gilgamesh and the Book of Genesis, and then he got to the Big Bang, and frankly, I had a hard time distinguishing the credibility of the Big Bang creation story from the Epic of Gilgamesh or or the Book of Genesis. It seems to me that today we may be creating our own myths. We just believe they're more true than the old myths. 
that that's sort of where I'm at with this. I mean, that, I just wanted to, I just wanted to tell you that because we tend to think, well, anything science comes up with must be true. Well, I think that back in the day, the followers of a Greek, the Greek gods and the Indians and the Egyptians, they thought that that what they believed in was true too. So, what makes us believe we're in some kind of privileged state? Oh, and today. Some of the stuff that they come up with just makes me laugh. I mean, it is just laughable. You know, one of the things that I discovered in writing this book, you know, because we go back to the Big Bang and the beginning of the, of, of uh, time. And so putting a, a time frame around it, a scientific time frame, you have to know, quote unquote, when they estimate that the universe was formed. Right. And so... You know, what scientists say is that, you know, the universe was formed 13 point something billion years ago. However, what they don't care to indicate to you is they say 13.7 billion years ago because that's how far they can see out into the universe. And they don't know if it extends further out, you know, because it takes you know, so long for the light waves to actually come to the earth. And so that's how far back in time they're able to view. But it's a vision thing. It has right. absolutely nothing to do with the reality of how big the universe is. And I just was like, how can they put information out? The universe is 13.7 billion years ago when they don't even know. Right, right. And one of my pet peeves with the modern scientific viewpoint, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it nicely as well since you put um, your, your viewpoint nicely, what is, is that um, they don't really tell us all the things they're assuming in their own creation myths or their own creation stories. Uh, for example, where all this matter came from, where the laws of nature came from. And so you sort of have to give them the, the, the benefit of the doubt on these major, major assumptions and then say, okay, well, it really, it, the, the, you know, the universe really uh, did create itself 14.5 billion years ago. The reason I, I think that a healthy skepticism, by the way, is helpful for the theories of modern science is that it keeps our minds open to the possibility that we may be looking at our history in the wrong way. And I, I think, for example, that it is naive or short-sighted to dismiss the stories of the Bible as myth, as completely mythical. I mean, do I think, this, do I think that they're literally true, such stories as Jonah and the whale? No, I do not think that they're literally true. However, they did occur in history somehow, or at least the stories occurred in history. And I think what makes this fun is finding out how these stories came about. And, and that's what I, that's what I saw, um, you know, in your book, what you were trying to do. And why don't, you, why don't you talk a little bit about what led you to, to investigate this area, this question about what, what are the origins um, of, the, of the gods? Okay. I mean, the whole thing started with um, the explosion of material about 2012 on TV. Right. Um, you know, so we're talking uh, three, four years ago. And being kind of a history, ancient mysteries, you know, that's an area, ancient uh, 
philosophical traditions, because I do believe that our ancestors, the ancients, especially when talking about philosophical traditions and multidimensional universes and meditation and energy movement and subtle energy, they knew, I think they were way smarter than us in a lot of different areas. With that said, you know, so we would watch these shows and they would, and they would go, well, the Mayans say this and and the Egyptians have myths, too, and the uh, Hindus, you know, they have myths, too, and they agree. But they never said what their beliefs were, which kind of, you know, got the hair on my neck standing up yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. You know, and I thought we missed it. I thought we missed what they said, and they reran the show, and they, it was just this kind of blanket statement. Oh, well, they say it, too. So I started doing some digging into... Uh, Indian cosmology, because it wasn't really an area that I spent a lot of time, not the mythological side or the historical side, and um, found it fascinating. Got um, some books that I read. I'm one of those people that really do read the dry, boring books that sit with dust on most people's shelves. Yeah, I do too. And, and, yeah. and read oh. the Vishnu Purana, which yeah. was really interesting to me. And one of the, thing, the stories that was in there was the story of Manu and the fish. And the story was remarkably similar to the Noah story. Now, I knew prior to that that there were at least 250 flood stories around the world. Um, apparently, there's a lot more than that, five to 600 flood stories that can be found around the world. And so I said, well, hmm, you know, just kind of on a lark, I started Googling, you know, flood stories and reading through them. And I was shocked. I was shocked. So I started. So then it started this whole process of, you know, like getting them and printing them. And and I started tabulating what the different stories said. And in essence, everything came down to a storyline that I could <laughs> that I can share with the listeners in one paragraph. And basically the narrative reads, and this isn't all the variations, but it's the bulk of the variations. Um, there was a pious, righteous, or virtuous man, depending on the culture, who was warned of a flood. He built a boat, an ark, dug a canoe, climbed a tree, or climbed to the top of a mountain. He was joined by his wife, maybe his sister. There might be a brother or an uncle or an old man, you know, a, a few people. Um, in some of the stories, there are children that are that join them, their children. Um, and in a couple of the stories, an animal is released, um, sometimes a bird, sometimes it's some other kind of, you know, a llama or some other kind of animal and to let them know that the water has receded. And that's it. That's, yeah, that's yeah, that's remarkable. Uh, and this is Philip Mirita, and this is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking to Dr. Rita Louise about Noah's Ark and the numerous similar stories throughout mythology talking about a flood. Now, I, I think that that is extremely um, compelling. And I'm not sure, I think, you know, other people have probably done that, but I think it's important for the listener to understand what Rita is saying here, which is that isn't it strange that there are hundreds of stories about a flood 
when clearly these people were not in radio contact with each other. Many, maybe some of them were, went, went from region to region, but it seems as if there are independent examples, independent stories of a flood event. Now, does that mean that, that Noah's Ark is true? Well, I don't think that that means Noah's, Noah's Ark is true, but I do think that it shows there's a lot of coincidence going on here that needs to be investigated. Exactly. And one of the things that I would like to share with the listeners also is is this thought. Philip, if I had a flood at my house, so let's say my uh, bathtub, which is on the second floor, overflowed and you know, was running for a while and the water was dripping down through the ceiling, you know, and the cats decided to run through it and, you know, the ceiling fell down and my husband gets all upset, you know, and I document that story. I put it in my journal here, you know, this is what happened with my tub. And at your house, your hot water heater overflows and, you know, you have, you know, something valuable in your garage that gets ruined. You know, and then there's the floods that happened in Southeast Asia. There's what happened on the East Coast. They have their flood experience and they document what happened. The people involved, the situation of what caused the flood, you know, would would by nature be different. Right. By nature. And that's not what we find. And you're right. It's extremely compelling. And that one finding... Well, one of the things that I realized was that we really entered the game very late in the story. And so we decided we need to go to, quote unquote, in the beginning right. <laughs> and, and, and come back forward. So this is, this is, this is another point I want to make before I, I'd like to, for you to follow up on that. And that is I see parallels between the reasoning that we're, we're going through here and evolution. Because when you look at the story of evolution, and this is Darwinian evolution, one of the pieces of evidence that evolutionists use to support um, the theory is that uh, human that that organisms such as the vertebrates have common limbs, common skeletal structures across across regions of the earth, and they and they use that that finding to say there must be a common ancestor. We're doing something related in a way here, which is to say that, well, there's these independent stories with the same theme. How is that possible unless they came from the same event? That's, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a similar line of reasoning. And so I, I, I think it's important to underscore the fact that, that we're not really talking, at least yet, about some far-out hypothetical speculation. We're talking about real myths in history, right, Rita? These are real stories that are recorded. Exactly, exactly. And um, to answer your question, you know, we went around and around in trying to figure out how that could be possible. I mean, because that's a huge question. How could it be possible that people in South America, how could the Inca have a story that is similar to a Greek myth? Right. You know, it, right. it, it, it be, just 
through time and separation. I mean, if the Americas were settled, and I'm being very conservative here, 12,000 B.C., you know, then one, that myth has to be older than that. But one of the things that was amazing was that we were finding parallel myths in Australia. Yeah. And it's believed that Australia was settled, uh, you know, 50, 60,000 years ago. And based on the level of technology that the Aborigines had, even in relatively modern times, it does seem like there has not really been outside influences impacting that culture. And so it seems like that's kind of the, oh, I can't think of what the word is, you know, but that's kind of like the primer, the primer, you know, if it's in their mythology and they don't have agriculture, they don't build monuments, they, you know, they don't, they don't do a whole lot down there. Right. Um, You know, that if the myths are showing up in their cosmology, it says that the myth is that is really old and the myths show up in their cosmology. Yeah. Yeah. So I think so. So from from the Noah's Ark research, you that led you to further inquiry into the basis of these historical myths. Is that is that right? Uh, I like you to talk a little bit about some of the other examples that you found in your research that you found compelling, whether it was the pyramids or or something else, that sort of told you that maybe as a culture we're looking at these stories from the wrong perspective. Well, one of the things that we looked at, and we didn't go into a lot of detail in the book because it took <laughs> it took a long time of really thinking about it. Um. And we kind of threw it out in the book, but I, anyway, um, is who actually told the stories, you know, and one of the things, you know, it is our belief. It is the belief of our society that the stories we have of the gods are our stories about them, that we're, we're talking about the gods. But one of the things that we have put out and I'd like to share with your listeners is perhaps the stories that come down to us from from uh, antiquity are actually the God stories about themselves that they shared with us. Hmm. Um, One of the things that we noticed in looking at those stories is that, well, one, like, let's use the flood story, you know, mankind up until up until or just before the flood did not exist so when you're talking about uh Zeus fighting a war against Kronos you know or Kronos castrating his father humanity didn't exist in the mythological timeline and so how did we find out about that and, but those stories about these great wars that occurred in antiquity show up around the world you know, and so how did that get documented if we didn't exist? Wow. And this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. We're talking to Dr. Rita Louise about the origin of the gods. So, 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 tell, me, so tell me what your theory is here about how these stories uh, came down to us. Okay, great question. 
Well, one of the things that mythology does tell us is that the gods came and taught us stuff. So if you think about it, Prometheus gave us fire. And I think it was Athena taught us agriculture. And I'm just going to use Greek here. Um, You know, but there is this constant and consistent pattern throughout time of us getting technology from the gods uh, because there are not, there is not one story about, well, we figured out how to weave. You know, we figured out how to rub sticks together. It is always the gods giving us stuff. And actually, you know, they tie the fall, the fallen angels and the cause of the flood because the angels taught us how to work with metal, you know, and they taught us the nature of medicinal herbs and they, they taught us stuff. And we believe that part of that education process was to tell us their myths, you know, where they came from, you know, what our history is. Um, And there is a consistent, you know, so there's that piece there. But then even in, um, and I'm trying to, I think it's the book of Jubilees that talks about when Moses goes to the top of the mountain, you know, the angel came and taught him our history, You know, so there is these consistent themes of God or the angels. You know, we have Enoch going and learning about uh, the movement of the sun and the moon and all of this stuff from God or from the angels. And so it doesn't seem, I mean, it seems clear even in Babylonian texts, we have Barosis who talks about these creatures called the Onas who came out of the water and taught mankind stuff, including our history. You know, and a parallel myth comes out of Mesoamerica, where the god, the feathered serpent, Kazakotl, came and taught mankind our history. A very similar legend also comes out of uh, Peru that talks about Viracocha coming and teaching mankind different things. Yeah, you know what's what's so much fun about this, about this line of of thinking and and conversation is that it always to me it's it's always um, sort of bewildered me how certain things happened. I mean, and and there's so many there's so many examples. I think recipes and the combination of herbs and spices and food. And an example would be how mankind, humankind, learned to make wine or beer. I mean, how? how and, do you, and they had beer really early, yeah. really early. <laughs> I mean, how do you how do you come up with these these recipes when 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 there isn't you know Rachel Ray or 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 uh, <laughs> you know the the uh, the the beer maker's guide at, um, at you know on Amazon or something? I mean, it really and and frankly, I mean, obviously, to say that the gods with a small G. Uh, came down and told humankind how to make any of the stuff, including beer, does not really solve the mystery. But but it it's it's interesting as you're pointing out that there's a lot of examples from mythology where indeed this very thing happens, right? The very thing happens. So and so gives fire, you know, to to humans, or they give how to love, or some or something else. Which is like okay, so well that's where it came from, you know. This God came from outer space and 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 told us how it happened. 
Uh, but but I want you to but to me I, it's it's an incredibly sort of sort of interesting and, and intriguing topic. But but you go a step further, right? You you say okay, well maybe maybe this did happen, but then but then what does that lead you to? Because what where did the gods come from? See that that's the natural next question. Well, based on and actually this is a new area that I've been exploring. And so, but I'm going to, based on mythology, um, they talk about primarily four different star groups, stars or star groups. Um, one being the Pleiades. You know, there are many myths that refer to the Pleiades. Um, in in uh, Egypt, you know, and, and in other areas, but we hear coming out of Egypt, you know, there is a connection to Orion, uh, the other place, like the Dogon, talk about Cirrus. But Cirrus, again, you know, the dog star, you hear it talked about repeatedly in mythology. And then this comes more out of uh, Native American, North American uh, mythology, and it's the connection with uh, Dracos or the, the North Star. Right. And, um, you know, and it's interesting, and this is a new area, and so I don't have it fully, I, I don't know that I'll ever have it figured out, and it's just so weird <laughs> and bizarre to me, you know, but there's a lot of people in the contemporary UFO culture, you know, you hear stories about the base, uh, underground base in Dulce, New Mexico, which to me is fascinating, you know, they talk about extraterrestrials living in this subterranean realm, right. which is completely supported by mythology. Right. You know, and so my little brain is going, <laughs> well, you know, I've been kind of researching that a little bit. And what's really interesting is that they talk about four factions of extraterrestrials. Philip, guess where they come from? Mars. Cirrus, hmm. the Pleiades. Hmm. Orion and Dracos. Oh. And I'm like, no. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just kind of, you know, and then they go into all of this other stuff, which we're not even going to touch because it's kind yeah. of even hard for me to even fathom it and believe. Well, I, I, I like to, I like to make two comments here, uh, you know, because part of, part of what we try to do here is to, is to tie down theories um, or ideas, uh, root them in in uh, logic and science and facts. And and there's two things that have always sort of um, troubled me about the extraterrestrial origin. One of them is that if you if you accept the findings of science and and the limitation of the speed of light as as being the maximum speed, the nearest uh, star other than the sun is Alpha Centauri, which I believe is about four light years away, which which sounds pretty close, except a light year is something like six billion miles. And we, I think, the fastest rocket ship goes about thirty thousand miles an hour. So if you add that up, it'd be very difficult, unless you are in a time warp Star Trek situation, it'd be very difficult for extraterrestrials to make it to the Earth. Um, unless, of course, they had some kind of mo super modern technology. The other problem I have is, and I don't know whether you've read how much, how much, uh, uh, how much evolution uh, books, how many evolution books you've read, but there's a, a theory. Lot. There's a theory called P 
panspiria. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Mm -hmm. But it's Mm -hmm. basically saying, you know, modern science faces a similar problem in figuring out where life began or how life began. And in fact, it's another one of those um, sort of unspoken mysteries of the modern science worldview where we, where if you read books called The Origin of Life, and there's quite a few of them, they really never tell you how life originated. There's a lot of ideas. But one of the ideas is that it came from outer space. And this is actually a, an origin of life theory um, that life originated in a, in a, in a different planet and, and, and was transported to the Earth on an asteroid or something, or a meteor or something like that. And in fact, and this is not, what I just said is not mythology. It's actually a right. scientific theory. So it sounds, to me, pans, panspuria sounds a little bit like um, an extraterrestrial source of the gods. It's just sort of a different level. But, but you know, I, I raise it for two points. Point one, uh, these, these, these tendency, this tendency to point to outer space as the origin of some of these things we don't understand is common to mythology and science. And it, it, to me, it's remarkable that that's, that that's true. But, it, but, but when you do that, here's the second point, you, you really leave unexplained the ultimate origin. Because how do you? Because now you have to explain how life arose on this other planet, just like we would have to explain. Well, how did the god, the gods, arise on these other planets, and how did they get to our lovely little planet Earth? So you know, and to me, my answer is I don't know. Right. You know, I mean, there's the part about getting to Earth, you know, which I I will make commentary on. But going back further than that, I don't know. You know. When when my kids were young, especially uh, my oldest son, he would ask these really hard questions, you know, kind of that whole line of thinking. But, you know, what about that? But what happened before that? And, right. you know, and I, after a while, we came up with an agreement that, you know, if it got to be too complicated, I would just go, God, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> it was me, God. Yeah. Yep, and, yeah. And, and, and let's just stop here. I mean, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know why should we we should be so embarrassed to say we don't know. Right. 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 Well, know? I think I think that one of the things that you do, though, and I, it's so important, and that is not be satisfied with the current explanation of the day. And, and, and uh, to me, it's, 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 it's almost offensive that many folks in, in leading positions consider all of this talk about there being truth in the myths or in the Bible as being fantasy, as being childish. And, and uh, you know, folks like Richard Dawkins and others, and um, the author of uh, Michael Shermer is another example, of folks that just don't give it any credibility at all at the same time that they're assuming all these other things in the scientific perspective. And so I think what's helpful here, Rita, and, I, and I, I, I'm sure you've had other people tell you this, is that taking a open mind to, this, to these mysteries, it's, it's at least healthy, and it may, it may lead to a broader perspective on some of these mysteries. Well, and that was really what we were hoping to do with this book, um, do we think that we have all of the answers? No, but I think we raise a lot of great questions and kind of, 
one of the things that we found was this overwhelming number of coincidences that occur in mythology, in the archaeological record, in, in different areas that make you have to stop and go, well, what's that about? You know, what's the next question? How did this happen? And let me give you an example. You know, one of the things that um, our current society, um, you know, we have a, a society. And one of the things that we have in this society is domesticated animals. Right. Now, they say that the first grains were domesticated about 10,000 B.C. Well, not much after that was the beginning of domestication of animals. Well, one of the things that I find very interesting, so we are starting to form cities. Um, we are starting to domesticate grain, although we're told that, you know, there's a God thing that teaches us how to do agriculture. So uh, we'll just kind of leave that to the side and just look at what we know from the archaeological record. Skip the mythology. So between 8,000 B.C. and 2,500 B.C., is the period of domesticated animals. We're not going to say really plants because they have uh, experienced a further evolution. Um, and that's it. And since 2500 BC, we as a society and as a people have never domesticated another animal. Hmm. Not one. Now, we've had 5,000 years. Why don't we have domesticated lions or domesticate you know what i mean right. why not you know and then even in that one of the things and and this really kind of surprised me in in looking at this whole domestication thing because one of the things that i was wanted to look at was the you know the spread they say that you know the middle east is the fertile crescent and that was where domestic uh, domesticated plants started and it spread out around the world but you know what that's a lie yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know it started out there we will give them credit we're not right. going to talk about bottle gourds which actually was domesticated before wheat but we'll we'll we'll, we'll give them that one you know right. so we're going to say wheat was domesticated in the fertile crescent however not much after that rice was domesticated in china and guess what they had, I think, sweet potatoes domesticated in South America. Now, I don't think there was communication particularly between the Middle East and South America. Right. You know, okay, so be that as it may, the one that the the one that just blew me away was, you know, when we think of like a horse or a camel or a llama, you know, those are pack animals. They are animals of labor, you know, and they, they carry our stuff. They either carry us or our stuff. All of those animals, all of those breeds were domesticated within a 1500 year period of each other. And then that's it. So, so you're saying domesticated around the world. Yes. The, so, the, so, uh, so, so, the so, horse was domesticated in the uh, Middle East, uh, the camel in India and in Egypt area because they have the one hump and the two hump camel, two different, you know, camels. Right. And then the llama and alpaca in South America. 
so all so, within that fifteen hundred year period. So what is what is what is this what does this tell us? What what does this sort of how can I put this this truncated or limited period of domestication tell us? Well, it says either you know. You know, I have people that say, well, you know, they were connecting with the cosmic conscious and that information was out there and, you know, they just connected with it. Right. Which, you know, I'm a very spiritual person, but I kind of have a hard time with that. Right. Um, You know, or they were taught how to do it. It was done for them, you know, and now they had the benefit of utilizing these animals. Um and I think that that is the case. I mean, it just seems just so far-reaching that we have these coincidences. There are just so many. You know, that's the thing. One of my other favorites in, in this area is the domestication or the manufacture of wheat. Okay. And so 9,000 B.C., um, we were starting to collect wheat, Okay, and it was a primitive form of wheat and using it. And we were already making bread long before that. Um, But we were, you know, the agriculture started. So it was this one kind of wheat. And then, Philip, we had a miracle happen. And I don't know any other way to say it. It was a miracle. And this one form of wheat somehow managed to mate with a kind of grass. Now, what we're saying is that we had a cat and a dog mate or an apple and a cherry tree mate and 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 produce viable offspring i mean we do have like horses and donkeys right mate you know what i mean right. but they're not they're they don't they can't reproduce you know and so right. but these created a plant which was a uh, elmer wheat which had more gluten um it stayed on the shaft better you know what I mean? It's right. so for a people, they, it was easier to bake bread. You know, and so there were a lot of benefits to mankind from this evolution, you know, from this <laughs> miracle well, of yeah. uh, farming. And this is Philip Mirton. We're talking to Dr. Rita Louise on conversations beyond science and religion. And we're talking about the amazing way that different plants and animals seem to have appeared on the planet Earth just in time for their use. Yeah, and I think yeah that that is that is real that's that is that is extremely interesting. And I guess one observation I would make it's 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 almost as if somebody is telling a story. It's 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 almost as if and it's time to write the next scene. You know, it, it's and I don't think we give that that perspective enough attention which is that when when we read history it does seem to go along in these epics in these you know these eras agriculture hunting hunting and gathering industrial as as if it was just sort of a random evolution of culture and society when there are these leaps that occur and and that's one way i would put it using the evolutionary um, mm-hmm. terminology there are these leaps that occur and it's just like well how did that leap happen like the example you just gave with with this uh this wheat uh grass hybrid uh, is it's just it's it's remarkable because it's it sounds it sounds as if somebody is writing a story but but 
they're they're not really telling anybody that they're doing it. It's just sort of happening, and 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 it's it's something that I think really makes history more compelling. I think that that is another aspect on which on which your you know your book really breaks breaks some ground there. That's cool. Well, you know, when I had a conversation with someone recently, um, you know, on, on this subject, you know, where you know, the gods, I mean, because, you know, Barosis talks about, you know, the Onaz showed up at six different periods in time, three times before the flood, three times after the flood. And which is interesting because we have three kind of bleeps in our history where we have this kind of emergence of new technology, you know, and then it kind of slows down and dies down with the latest, the last bleep being around 4000 BC, you know, right at that advent of civilization, we got all this stuff and it's kind of slowed down. And so, but it's interesting because in the last 50 years, we kind of have this new bleep, you know, and if you get into the whole conspiracy UFO thing, you know, they tie it all to these, you know, crafts that have you know, crash Roswell and other extraterrestrial craft that have uh, been captured or, you know, found or whatever, and, you know, and reverse engineering that technology. And so there is this thought that as opposed to the gods showing up and giving us stuff, um, even though, you know, there are people that say that they are, you know, that's who's flying in the sky, that perhaps their way of giving us stuff was by leaving the technology there for us to back engineer, which has taken us to this computer age and cell phones and where we are today. There, there is, there is an aspect of what, of what uh, you're saying that does sound like God of the gaps and, and, and God of the gaps being, things that we cannot explain we attribute to the big G God but but here we're sort of attributing it to small G gods there there's there's a certain there's a certain similarity I think to it but but I think what's what it it pinpoints and and you do this at the end of your book which I which is how I how I like to sort of uh, close this out a little bit here and that is we we're living uh, in a in a world where we have a lot of mysteries, a lot of unanswered questions, even after science has been doing its thing for the last couple hundred years, we have a lot of mysteries, such as the the origin of mass, the origin of the laws of nature, the origin of life. Uh, this whole question about evolution is not solved. The the these leaps in in understanding and education raise a lot of questions and something and something that that you do and I do in my own book uh, the heaven at the end of science which is that you compare sort of where science is which is basically saying that where what we're living in is sort of a random chance outgrowth of these impersonal laws you compare that conclusion with a conclusion that brings some intelligence into the picture and 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 so and I thought it was interesting that at the end of your book you really you talked about Oakham's razor and and maybe you could elaborate upon upon that and why you ended the book like that. Well, you know my husband. Oh yeah, oh yeah, my husband wrote that part. <laughs> <laughs> it's all his fault. It's all his fault. 
Oh, okay. Um, you know, when science looks to explain what's going on, you know, it just ends up get becoming more and more convoluted. It's like, well, this happened because of that, because of that, because of that. And it, to us, it just seems like, you know, we've always had the answers. They, you know, we had the cheat sheet. Right. All along. And we're just ignoring that. You it, know, and not just going, well, is it, you know, we're, you know, what I find really interesting, Philip, is that it's only in Western society that we have this issue. In Native American cultures, they fully believe in a god that lives in the sky that has come down to earth and created man. Right. You know, and in India, same thing. They have, you know, a consistent belief in these gods that walked on the earth at one point in time. You know, it's just in Western tradition that that belief has just been suppressed. And I believe that... um, it, it, you know, people go, well, yeah, but what about the Bible? But I think the Bible supports mythology or mythology actually supports the narrative that we do find in the Bible. I, you know, with, with one little caveat, you know, when you go from a pantheon of these different personalities of different gods down to one God, you have to get rid of a lot of the story. You know, you can't have these wars between two factions of gods occurring if there's only one god. I mean, they did create the devil. You know what I mean? So right. they, they kind of have a an out over there. Um, you know, and, and in a kind of weird way of saying it, it's like, you know, the Bible tells the same stories, except they just have a lot of white out and they <laughs> cover it up. Yeah. You know, it's like, ah, don't, don't yeah. read that part. Don't yeah. read that part. Yeah. Well, but there are some telltale things that sneak through, you know, like, and, you know, and I'm sure you've talked about this on the show before, you know, Elohim, which is plural for God, you know, it's right. gods with an S not, you know, and so they go, Oh, well, it can be singular and plural. Right. Yeah, right. yeah. Which, you know, okay, well, whatever. You know, and then there's the whole sons of God. It's right. like, well, how can God have sons? Right. Well, well, I I, I happen to be very radical on, on, on many of these topics, including this one. And, you know, my own, my own view is that is that we we are living a myth is that is that we are just continuing the same myths the same story that began thousands of years ago in ancient mythology i think that that we are we are gods with a small g having an identity crisis i, I and <laughs> and and one one of the things that's remarkable to me and it, this it's so obvious but when you with every time you read stories of the gods they're always having relationship problems. They're always having. They're always having. They're always having. You know, spousal feuds, and they're ha- they're having the same drama that we, that we have. It's it's not any different. What makes I mean, the what makes their lives any different? They're supposed to be magical and have these super powers and everything. But as you point out, when you look at our modern technology, we're probably more advanced than the gods we read about. You know, maybe we don't have the hammer of Thor, but we have a lot of things that are pretty similar to that. 
So, so it, this, is, this is really a, a fascinating topic, and unfortunately we've run out of time, and we, I'm sure we can go on. There's a lot of reasons why we can't. Um, one of them, this is an hour show. Another one is because this is Super Bowl Sunday when we're recording this show. <laughs> and and um, there's all sorts of Super, fo- um, Super Bowl food that needs to be baked and, and uh, bought at the store. But Rita, why don't you talk a little bit about how folks could get in touch with you and find okay. out more about what you're up to. Sure. So my primary webpage is soulhealer.com. That's S-O-U-L-H-E-A-L-E-R, soulhealer.com. And that's kind of the portal to everything Dr. Rita Louise. So you can get information about uh, my book, Man Made, The Chronicles of Our Extraterrestrial Gods, as well as my other three books. Um, you can access the radio show, Just Energy Radio. It has its own page, www.justenergyradio.com. Um Let's see. I'm just trying to think. Uh, Man Made the Chronicles of Our Extraterrestrial Gods is available on Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. It is available in the Kindle edition for you Kindle folk. Uh, there's a lot of Kindle people. I was just yeah. amazed. Yeah. And um, and also available through Barnes & Noble brick-and-mortar stores. Um, but if you purchase it directly from us, from soulhealer.com, your book will come autographed by the authors, wow. which is priceless. Wow, wow. So that's that that's something that is that is worth a visit to her website. Well once Hey Phil, again, can I make one sure. more little comment? Go right ahead. Okay. So in June, uh, June first through twelfth, myself and uh, Brian Forrester, who's a regular on the Ancient Alien show, are doing a tour down in Peru. And one of the things we're doing is uh, we're doing some remote viewing and uh, different uh, intuitive remote viewing techniques to really tap into the ancestors, see if we can connect with the builders of sites like Saxiwaman and Machu Picchu. And it's going to be really exciting. And so information about that is available on soulhealer.com and just click on the Saxiwaman, the picture with the giant megalithic stones, and you'll get more information. Great, great. And, and once again, I would, I would recommend... Uh Rita's book for another mind-opening look at at what um, ancient mythology may tell us about our own world, and we have to understand that um, one of the great scientists of all time, that's Albert Einstein, had that famous quote where he said something like, you can't solve a problem with the same level of consciousness that created it. I think it's important for us really to take his words to heart. The only way we're really going to unite science and spirituality is by rising above our current belief systems, opening our minds and viewing things from a different perspective. And so viewing viewing ancient mythology in a new light, uh, like Rita has done, I think is, is eye-opening and really worth our time. So this is Philip Mirton. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, and thank you for listening. Rita, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Philip. Same at you. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 